You've got questions, we've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, I hope you have had an absolutely awesome week. It doesn't matter what time of the year it is, where we are in the world. It's Friday, and that means you've got questions, we've got answers. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. And as we do from time to time, we are answering questions that you have posted on social media as opposed to taking calls. So phone lines will be open on the next broadcast but today sit back and enjoy these great questions that have been submitted here is one from marie she said are all the promises given to the jewish people in israel extended to believing gentiles and she says i know israel is the apple of god's eye i believe the jewish people are god's chosen people only by grace and mercy gentiles were grafted in We are a salvation to the Jewish people of God. I would never want to take anything away from them ever. I know God loves us both. I had posted a comment immediately after seeing hers that she then responded to. So I want to respond to the whole here. I had said you can apply the promises spiritually as long as you don't steal them from Israel. Hence her further reply to me on Twitter. So we know throughout the New Testament that many of the promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament are applied spiritually to the church as a whole. And everyone stands by grace. Jews stand by grace and Gentiles stand by grace. The fact that the Jewish people are the chosen people only adds accountability. It doesn't make us special or have a special inside track to salvation where we don't need grace and everybody else does, or we only get grace and nobody else does. So when it comes to Israel and the, the, the promises... There are promises that God gave specifically to Israel that apply specifically to Israel and are not for the whole church. For example, the promise to inherit the land. The whole church inherits the world. We all inherit in Jesus the universe. That's laid out in the end of 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. But when it comes to the physical promise of the land, that was something that God gave to the physical descendants of Israel. And so when God told Joshua, for example, every, every place where your foot treads, that's yours. Well, we could make spiritual application as we, we take land for God and as we push back demonic strongholds and things like that. And we can apply all of the promises spiritually. But number one, specific promises that were given to Israel in a specific context still apply specifically to Israel. And number two, you can spiritually apply everything as long as you remember it still applies to Israel. Now, some promises to Israel will not be fulfilled outside of Jesus, meaning Israel's salvation, Romans eleven twenty six. so Israel will be saved, which is on the heels of uh, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. That will not happen without explicit faith in Jesus, Yeshua. However, there are other things like God saying he's going to keep us and preserve us. That's even in our unbelief, we're still kept and we are still preserved. All right, let's see. Um, Ryan asks, could you explain what Jesus meant in Luke's and Matthew's gospel in mentioning a certain Zechariah who was killed between the sanctuary and the altar? 
Is there a contradiction in, to, in who his father was? Thank you for your ministry. Yeah, so if we take a look uh, in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, we see something that has puzzled scholars over the years. We, and, and we also see it in, in uh, Luke, the 11th chapter. It doesn't mention, though, Zechariah's father there. Uh, hence, this is less controversial. What is controversial is this. Matthew twenty three thirty five, so that all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, it's what Jesus is saying here is that all the righteous blood that's been shed through history will be visited on that generation in Jerusalem, which was guilty of rejecting the Messiah. So it starts with the first righteous person killed in the Old Testament, namely uh, Abel. And then the last one who's mentioned as being killed, that's what we understand. That's what we're presuming, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So what's that, what's that talking about? Uh, it goes back to um, Second Chronicles, where there's a Zechariah who's killed, okay? Uh, but it's a different Zechariah. It's not Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. So we, we go back to Second Chronicles, the 24th chapter, and, and we have mention of a different Zechariah there. The Spirit of God took control of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood above the people and said to him, this is what God says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commandments and you do not prosper? Uh, because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. So... This is, this is reconciled in several different ways. One is to say, well, it's possible that, that Jesus was speaking about Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the prophet Zechariah, who is mentioned in the book of Zechariah, who must have been killed also. We know that Israel killed other prophets. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was killed. There are other traditions that say that, that many other prophets were killed by Israel in history, going right back to uh, the golden calf incident where Jewish tradition speaks of Israel killing prophetic voices that rebuke them. So it could be that Zechariah, son of Berechiah, was also killed and in a similar location, perhaps prophesying at the temple, which would make perfect sense. That's, that's one possibility. A second possibility is that Yeshua said it correctly, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, but because Zechariah, son of Berechiah, was so much better known uh, as a prophet a minor prophet in, in, in the Bible, because of that, that a scribe incorrectly fixed it or unconsciously fixed it, by, thereby unfixing it. So you do have some manuscripts that read Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. That's a second possibility, which is, which is certainly uh, plausible. And again, we have manuscript evidence that could support that. Uh, the other argument would be, no, 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 someone was just trying to fix it later. The third possibility would be that Two biblical characters are conflated as one. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, perhaps he was killed as well, and Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, whom, who is referenced here in Second Chronicles 24. Uh, you say, well, how does that work? Well, we have the exact same thing in the Targum, uh, the Targum being the Jewish translation paraphrase of the Bible, that it does the very same thing in one of its translations where it merges the two characters together. Uh, so any of these three possibilities are valid. If, in fact, Yeshua said Zechariah, son of Berechiah, then he was telling us that he was also martyred, 
And it was also known uh, to the people that he was martyred. It is, it is highly, certainly he didn't get it wrong, but it is highly unlikely that later scribes would have changed the words of Jesus in any knowing way. It would have had to have been accidental. By the way, I could give you a fourth possibility, namely that Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, <clears throat> was also known as Zechariah, son of Berechiah, that you could have had what's called a leveret marriage, so he had one physical father, but one father after whom he was named. All those are certainly possible. There's no reason to get up in arms and say, oh, this is a blatant contradiction. If the early copyists of the Gospels had felt that way, that would mean that they thought no reason to correct this, even though it's a blatant error. That would be odd, right? Or look at it like this, that Matthew, who took decades working on his gospel, that that he never figured out the error or that he made the error. These are highly, highly unlikely. Okay, let's see. Uh, Martin, uh, I've heard you say previously that no one could read the Bible and come up with a pre-trib rapture. So how did people read it and come up with it? Are you saying they pieced it together over time? I just see a flaw in your logic. Someone had first to come up with it. Yeah, yeah. Great question. I love it. So Professor Craig Keener and I have a book coming out, I believe, March 19th, called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Trib Rapture. We make it very clear that we honor our pre-trib brothers and sisters, that we recognize there, there are dispensationalist scholars and teachers and preachers and missionaries. We were both saved in dispensationalist pre-trib teachers, so the purpose of the book is not to divide, but to look at Scripture and to edify. And hey... If people have the right to write a book on why they believe in a preacher of rapture, we have the right to write a book on why we don't believe in a preacher of rapture, right? Well, it's being divisible. Aren't the others being divisive that teach theirs? Now, we're not being divisive at all. We're honoring the word, loving the word, exalting the word, and trying to edify, help, and build a theology of confidence and hope in the midst of calamity whenever it comes to every generation. Having said that, our, our point is that we don't believe if you put 10,000 people in rooms all by themselves, they could read the Bible fluently in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, that any of them would come up with this scheme where there is a twofold second coming, first the rapture where Jesus comes invisibly and, and secrets us out, and then the return where he actually arrives at the earth. We don't believe anyone would come up with that on their own. So how did the first people come up with it? Well, as we trace it back uh, to the to the 1800s, perhaps in Scotland, 1830s, some would say 1860s, it seems to tie in with prophetic words that were given. It seems to tie in with alleged revelation people claim to have, which they then discovered in the Scripture. So to the best of my knowledge, this was not deduced by internal exegesis, looking at Scripture, looking at Scripture, and out of that coming to conclusions Rather, there were alleged prophetic words given that were then found, the the revelation now found in Scripture, as best as I understand that. Now, let let me say a couple of things. I believe that you could lock someone in a room, so like a thousand people in the room, and, and give them Bibles, and they're subjects to which they would come to different conclusions. So you're just in the room by yourself reading the Bible, cover to cover, day and night for several years. I believe some would come out Calvinists and some would come out Arminians. I believe that. Maybe not the exact systems, but holding to these various things. I believe that people would come out with different views about how we are to worship or what church structure is to look like. 
I personally don't believe that anyone would, would come out as a cessationist. Oh, yeah, stepped on a couple of toes there. In other words, I don't believe that just reading the Bible without any experience to go either way, without any church history to go either way, I don't believe anyone would come out saying that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. I, I don't believe it would, it would dawn on them. I don't, I don't believe they would see a reason for that, personally. Now, I'm not going to get into all the reasons for that. I believe that people would come to some type of understanding that resembled a Trinitarian understanding, but maybe not fully nuanced, maybe not putting all the pieces together. After all, the, the mysteries of the Incarnation are great. Still, I believe there would be concept of the, the deity of the Son that people would come away with, but I understand that we also form our ideas in community as a people of God together, and we learn from one another. That sharpens our beliefs. All right, right back with more of your questions. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast this Friday. You've got questions. We've got answers. I'm responding to your social media questions today. So let's get right back into this. Um, boy, Saride, not sure how to pronounce the name. Can a woman be a pastor, teach to everyone in the church, or just men allowed to do that? Since I've been asked this so many times, since we have addressed it so many times on the radio, we just provided a short video that answers this question. So if you'll just go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, click on our digital library and search for women, pastors, uh, you'll see a video where we teach and explain. In short, in short, I believe God can use women in any way he pleases and that many times as the situation calls for, he will use women in leadership and ministry, but the normal pattern, the desired pattern is men in governmental authority in uh, church ministry. Okay, Ronald, how do you answer the accusation that Christianity is the white man's religion when the Bible was misused to justify, perpetuate, and subjugate a race of people? You know, Ronald, uh, first, it's 100% not true that Christianity is the white man's religion. We respond with facts. So, number one, Jesus was not a white man. Moses was not a white man. Paul was not a white man. The, uh, you know, the, the best you're going to... You know, let's, let's just say they were more brown than white, okay? Or more brown than black. But in any case, they were not Caucasians. They were not Europeans. So that's the first thing. So our Savior was not a white man. That's where we start. None of the apostles were white men. None of the, the heroes of faith of the Old Testament upon which the New Testament is built, none of them were white men. That's the first thing. The second thing is, around the world today, the majority of believers are not white. Worldwide, the majority of believers are not white. So from the numbers from Africa, the numbers from Asia, the numbers from Latin America say to us that the majority of believers worldwide are not white. So number one, our Savior is not a white man. Number two, the majority of believers worldwide are not white. Number three, the gospel brings liberation. Christianity, when it is rightly lived and taught and preached, brings liberation. 
Slavery is practiced throughout the entire world. It was ultimately the gospel that freed the slaves. Yes, there were people who used religion to subjugate. I mean, who, what religion subjugates more people than Islam? And interestingly, Islam is not called the white man's religion, whereas Islam has grown by the sword, and Islam practices slavery to this day in, in many different countries. So to, to say it's the white man's religion because it subjugates people is, is bogus in every count. Uh, no, the gospel brings liberation. People have used religion to, to destroy, but the gospel liberates. The, the Bible sets captives free. If you think of, of the founding of America, you say, well, how could the founders found a country in which there was slavery? Well, many of them uh, objected to it. They came together to fight against Britain, where they found tyranny against their own lives and, and breaking of laws and oppression. But in point of fact, slavery was just practiced everywhere. It was the gospel that brought slavery. It was the gospel in England through Wilberforce and others that ended slavery, that abolished slavery, I should say, not brought it, abolished it. The same in America, that because of our gospel heritage, we could not ultimately tolerate slavery. So it is, a, it is 100% false. Uh, let's see, Garrett, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, seems to indicate that it is impossible for apostates to repent what is your take on these verses? This question is personal because I, shamelessly was an apostate for a few years during my teenage years and was thinking about converting to Judaism. I never converted. Since I was an apostate, is it possible for me to repent or does the passage in Hebrews indicate otherwise? I spent many nights worrying about whether or not I'm truly saved. I've also shed many tears due to the guilt I had for rejecting Jesus. Has Jesus forgiven me? Garrett, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you've been through such pain over this and that you've struggled over this. The whole story of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that God receives backsliders, that God welcomes back those who have turned away and returned. Just look at Jeremiah 3.22. It uses the, the root shuv, which is turned back three different times. Shuvu banim shovavim, erpam shuvotechem. Turn back, O back-turning children. I will heal your backslidings. That is a promise from God, regardless of what your mind tells you, regardless of how you feel. That is a promise from Almighty God. The prodigal son, he was in the father's house. He foolishly left his father's house and lost everything. And what happened? The father welcomed him. The father ran out to greet him. The moment you turned back to God and asked him for forgiveness, Garrett, he forgave you that very moment. He forgave you that split second. It, it, he didn't hold on to it and make you prove yourself for five years and then say, okay, now you can come in from the doghouse, just like the prodigal and his father. The father was looking for him and ran out to meet him. That was how God welcomed you back. You need to receive that because Jesus died for those sins. That means that we need to interpret Hebrews 6 in light of what the rest of the Bible says. In other words, we cannot simply look at one verse in isolation from a whole Bible that consistently tells us that God forgives and God restores and God brings the backslider home. Let me read this to you from the International Standard Version, which is a, an excellent translation by top scholars. For it is impossible to keep on restoring to repentance time and again people who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
We have become partners with the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away as long as they continue to crucify the Son of God to their own detriment by exposing him to public ridicule. So speaking in particular to, to Jews who would think, well, we, we, have our, we have our Judaism, we have our system, so they once believed, but now they deny him and thereby crucify him afresh. As long as they're in that state, he's saying there's no repentance for them. So just look it up, the ISV. I'm looking right now, BibleGateway.com, which is free. Just look up the ISV to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. I believe that is what is being taught there. Be at peace, my friend. All right. Um, Aaron, debunking people who are using the Bible to push their flat earth belief. Yeah, I, I guess you mean, how do we debunk the people? Well, obviously the scientific evidence, the evidence from satellites, the evidence from astronauts, uh, those who circled the globe, that's more than enough for me scientifically, unless you think the whole thing is one big conspiracy. And, and NASA and the astronauts and all the different countries around the world with satellite imagery, they're all making it up. That's one thing. But as far as the Bible is concerned, it uses observational language. It talks about the sun rising and the sun setting. Do we believe that the sun goes around the earth rather than the earth going around the sun? No, but that's observational language. Just like we talk about, oh, isn't that a beautiful sunset today? That's how it appears. You know, the Bible also speaks about God sitting on the circle of the earth in the book of Isaiah. Does the word hug there mean circle, in which case the Bible's telling us the earth is not flat? obviously by divine revelation? Or is it just talking about the circle being the horizon, the, 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 the farthest corner or the farthest dimension, I should say, that you could see? Um, you could debate that. But if you're going to throw verses and say, well, it says the corners of the earth, then I'll throw the circle of the earth back at you. So the corners of the earth, the ends of the earth, we didn't say, man, he'd go to the ends of the earth for the gospel. We use those terms today. And remember this, if... God revealed to the Israelites that the earth was round and that that's what they taught and that the earth went around the sun, then every generation in history with their scientific knowledge would have ridiculed the Bible and said it was false for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. For more of biblical history, it would have been ridiculed as being false because people misunderstood things. Now that we have more accurate information for hundreds of years, we we can look at things differently. So anyway, I, yeah, one of, the, one of these days, I, I guess, I, I need to uh, have someone on and debate the flat earth arguments. Okay, um, let's see. David, the biblical new covenant position on racism and other ethnic issues pertinent to believers. Well, what the Bible tells us plainly in the New Testament, quite plainly, Acts 17, that we're all one race. That's number one. Acts 17, we are all one race. Number two, in Jesus, there are no ethnic distinctions. Oh, yes, there's still men and women. There's still Jews and Gentiles. And in certain social settings, there's still maybe slaves and free people. But in Jesus, we are absolute equals. There are no ethnic distinctions in him. In other words, God doesn't look at black children, white children, Asian children, Hispanic children, red children. He looks at his children, his family, even though we have these ethnic distinctions in this world, and it's part of the beauty and and diversity 
of the world. And Revelation 22 even says that the nations of the world will bring their their glory. So the particular beauty of the culture will bring that into the New Jerusalem. But number one, we're all of one race. Number two, in G- so, so the whole human race, outside of Jesus, inside Jesus, we're still all of one human race, all descendants of Adam, number one. Number two, that in Jesus there are no racial, ethnic distinctions. Number three, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That crosses ethnic divide. And number four, we are to liberate captives. We are to set the oppressed free. Number five, we are to stand against injustice. These are all themes throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. So, absolutely, let us recognize one people in Adam, one people redeemed in Jesus. No racial distinctions in God's family. Let's practice justice, set captives free, and love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, thanks for spending this Friday with me. Or whenever you're listening to the broadcast, if you're watching, we are audio only today. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, audio only to everyone listening on radio by podcast, you, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know for audio only if we've got our video cameras running as well. All right. I'm answering your questions today. You've got questions. We've got answers. But before you pick up the phone, oh, sorry. We are answering your social media questions today. Daniel wants to know, can I do a show on the Hebrew word tikva, hope? Of course, this is the word that's famous around the world because the national anthem of Israel is Hatikva, literally the hope. But uh, to do a, a whole show on it, boy, I, I mean, obviously I could open up the, the words and and go through various verses, but the the meaning is fairly straightforward. Kava, the root kava, can mean to wait for expectantly, to hope in. It's famous in Job thirteen fifteen, which is subject to a myriad of possible translations. The King James, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the first half of the verse. Uh, so yet will I trust him, yet will I hope in him. Uh, Isaiah 40, the end of the, the chapter, Kovei Adonai, those who hope in the Lord, wait for the Lord. So tikva is, is hope, it is confident, Expectation. So I'm not doing a whole show on it right now, but I am giving you the essence of the word. It is hope. It is confident expectation. It is, it is waiting for him with expectation. That is the essence of hope. Okay, let's see here. <laughs> Sorry, this, is, this was not a, a question. It was just I, I noticed someone posted yesterday uh, on, on Facebook you're kind of funny looking. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't argue with that, actually. But if that was meant as an insult, that's one of the nicer insults I've gotten in a while. Okay, Christopher. I found out I'm Jewish by DNA through my father. As a Christian, what does this mean for me as far as my relationship to God? Does he, God, consider me a Jew in regard to his covenant to Abraham? 
or am I in Christ and therefore part of the church only? Okay, number one, we are in Jesus first and foremost, meaning our relationship with God is not found primarily in being a Jew or a Gentile, but primarily by being in right relationship with him through his son, the Messiah. So you can be a Jewish person who rejects Jesus and you are lost. You can be a Gentile person who accepts Jesus and therefore found. All right, so we understand that. Let's start there. But being in Jesus does not mean that you no longer have ethnicity or that you no longer have a relationship that has a history grounded with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am a Jew, and that does impact my life, just like being a man impacts my life. In the Messiah, there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, meaning no caste system, no class system. As I frequently said, we are equally children of God. We are equally branches on the vine. We are equally priests to God. We are equally members of the body. All those things are true, yet men are still men and women are still women. And Paul gives specific teaching to men and specific teaching to women. And there are verses that are written in the New Testament where Jews, their concerns of Jews are addressed and concerns of Gentiles are addressed. And Gentiles are urged in a certain way and Jews are urged in a certain way. So those distinctions remain. But in Jesus, they, they don't stand for differences in relationship to God. Again, no caste system, no class system. However, I'd be curious to know when you say that you found out you're Jewish by DNA through your father, do you mean that you found 3% Jewishness or something like that? That that would not indicate Jewishness. That would indicate that somewhere along the line, someone married in or a few married in over a period of generations and that's it. So if you're saying, no, no, my dad's Jewish, I found that out. So I'm like, you know, 60% Jewish, whatever, however it works out. Okay. And if, if you know, if your dad said, yeah, I'm Jewish, or somehow this was a family secret hidden, that came out. Uh, so, so yes, you are Jewish in God's sight, and you need to ask him what that means. What that means in terms of identification with the Jewish people what that means in terms of calling as a witness, what that means as far as covenantal identity. No, I don't believe that now you've suddenly come under the Sinai covenant, but many Jewish believers feel a covenantal calling to identify with their people, say by being part of a Messianic Jewish congregation, or by setting aside the Sabbath as holy, or keeping the dietary laws. Not to earn salvation, but if we're free not to, we're free too as well. So that's what you really have to pray about. All right, Sarah asks this question. What is your opinion on the book of Yashar, normally pronounced Joshar, but in Hebrew Yashar, and its reliability? Also, what version would you recommend, if any? Okay, we don't have the book of, of Joshar. We don't have it. It's mentioned, for example, in the book of Joshua, it's mentioned in the Bible that thus and such is recorded in the book of Joshua, but actually we don't have uh, the book. You say it's, it's mentioned, right, but in point of fact, we don't, we don't have the book. We don't, uh, it's not been preserved. You say, no, no, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you, you, can, you can read it online. Yeah, okay, to, to repeat, we don't have the actual book. Uh, if there, 
so it mentions, for example, Joshua 10.13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Yashar? And then Second Samuel 1.18, uh, and he ordered the Judites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Yashar. So sometimes it's spelled G-A, excuse me, J-A-S-H-A-R, sometimes J-A-S-H-E-R. What we have that you can order today or read online was written many hundreds of years later as if it was that book. So we don't have the book that's mentioned in Joshua and Second Samuel. It doesn't exist in any shape, size, or form, period. I can assure you of that. Many hundreds of years later, a book was written purporting to be that book. That's what you get. But that, that has no value or meaning or reliability, okay? When you say what version would I recommend, well, obviously none because we don't have it. If you mean what version would I recommend of the Bible, We've done lots of shows on this. I would encourage you to go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and click on Bible translation or just translation, and you'll see whole broadcasts that we've done on this. Also, uh, uh, search for Tree of Life, Tree of Life. That is the Messianic Jewish translation with a team of scholars, Messianic Jewish and Christian, that I participated in that has a number of unique qualities that are very special that you might really enjoy. Okay, let's see. Sean, is it really possible for some Jews to trace their lineage back to King David accurately? Okay, it is debatable. I saw an interview with a gentleman in in Israel where he claimed that ultra-Orthodox Jew, he claimed he could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And so, of course, whatever lineage you have within Scripture from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then whichever tribe of of Israel he was from, and then from there on, uh, you have that recorded in the Bible. But then he's claiming, no, that he's got history from the Bible right up till the present day. Is that possible? Uh, some would argue that when it comes to King David, there's a you, you could use DNA, and there are possible arguments for that. Uh, how reliable is is that uh, DNA descendant of King David? If you type that in, um, you can read about it. I'm just typing as I'm speaking now. Uh, DNA research. Uh, you have the DavidicDynasty.org. Davidic dynasty.org you can check out and uh, it is dedicated to let me just read what the website says dedicated to oh different line here the Davidic dynasty is interesting and have helping establish a DNA link for the descendants of the Davidic dynasty how reliable is that you have to go to the site study it and evaluate it for yourself but uh, can someone actually prove by genealogy they have preserved records, family records have been preserved. That, again, is debatable. It's possible traditions were passed on. Look, you have people with the last name, name Levi, and they are descendants from the tribe of Levi. You have people with the last name Cohen. Not everyone, but you have descendants, people with the last name Cohen. That means they're a descendant of the Kohen, Aaron, and they, they are priests, historically. Uh, and that's been preserved through name and, and genealogy and things like that, and then confirmed from what we can tell by DNA. 
Uh, so obviously the question would be if someone claims to be a descendant of David today, that they are a messianic claimant, <clears throat> that this one is supposed to be the, the son of David, how could we really tell? It's a fair question. There would definitely be dispute over that. But in the Jewish community, the argument would be that the one who performs the messianic deeds and carries out the messianic mission thereby identifies himself as the son of David. In other words, even if you were going to debate the genealogy issues, you'd say, hey, he rebuilt the temple. He regathered the exiles. He destroyed the enemies of Israel. He established peace on the earth. He brought the entire nation into Torah observance. Obviously, he's the Messiah. In a parallel way, the, the debate about whether Jesus is the Messiah ends when he returns. You don't have to argue genealogy. You don't have to argue messianic prophecy. You don't have to argue anything. When he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God, when he, when he comes <clears throat> like lightning, <clears throat> which is seen from the east to the west, when he comes and catches up his people with him and we descend together in glory and he establishes the perfect kingdom of God on the earth and, and he destroys the wicked and he establishes a glorious sanctuary in Jerusalem. As he does these things, there's, there's not going to be any debate at that point. Well, I, I'm not sure about the genealogical claim. Is he really son of God and son of David? Those debates will end at that moment. All right, back with more of your questions posted on social media and a special request for each of you. I almost gave out the number out of habit, but I caught myself. I think this is one of the rare shows where I've caught myself not giving out the number when we're answering social media questions on a Friday. All right, stay right here, and we will be right back before you even know it. On the line of fire. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us this Friday on the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, blessed, honored to spend this time with you. Uh, To all of you who take time daily to listen to the broadcast, to watch the broadcast, that, that means the world to me that our teaching, this broadcast, the guests we have, are of that much meaning in your life. We take every show with the utmost seriousness, knowing that this is a stewardship from the Lord. And after 10 years plus of live daily talk radio, I love it. I'm thrilled with being on the air. And I just have a simple request for you, all right? Every one of you, all around the world, wherever you are, regardless regardless of your state, your standing, your health, every one of you, can do what I'm about to ask you to do. I simply want you to pray a prayer with me, a simple prayer. Would you? Father God, in Jesus' name, we ask you to meet the needs of this ministry. Would you do that on your own? That simple prayer, that's all I'm asking you to do. Lift up a prayer for us. Father, you can pray for an hour if you want. I mean, wonderful. Intercede for us. And if he speaks to you to help us, wonderful. But I'm just asking all of you to pray that prayer. And if you think of it while you're listening to the show each day, Father, would you meet the needs of this ministry? He knows our needs. It could be a deepening of our spirituality. 
it, it could be God connecting certain people with us and new doors opening. It could be an influx of funds. He knows the needs inside out. Obviously, it's our desire to glorify him and to reach the maximum number of people with the, the maximum message. In other words, we won't water down the message to reach people, but we want to reach the maximum people with the maximum message. So could you make that a habit, maybe, when the show starts or during the show or at the end? Say, Father, would you meet the needs of this ministry? Uh, that's it. That's all I'm asking you to do. Would you? And, and take a second to do it now, all right? Do it on your own now as I go to your social media questions. Thank you. Really, I mean it. Thank you. Okay, this is from Nikki. Doctor, can you discuss telescoping compression in the Gospels and how this relates to biblical inerrancy and or infallibility? Yeah, so telescoping or compression, these concepts are related. The standard analogy that's given is you're standing on the top of a mountain and you're looking over at a mountaintop right next to you. I mean, it's, it's really close. But actually, that is not the real perspective. The real perspective is there is a, a, a large valley in between the two mountains, and they're actually quite a distance. But standing there, they look much closer. So when you telescope, let's say you're, you're looking down the road. Let's say you, you live on this long road, and it's a half mile down the road, right? And you're looking through the telescope, and you see somebody riding their car really fast coming right at you. You say, whoa, and you look up. Oh, they're, they're a quarter mile down the road, but you've got a powerful telescope. It looks like they're right at you. So the gospel writers wrote using literary conventions of the day and even following biblical precedent, meaning they weren't writing history or biography the way we would write it today in all respects, but they were writing history and biography quite intentionally. If you have any question about that, just look at how Luke starts his gospel off. So uh, you would often put things in a different chronological order to make a certain point. In in other words, I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm I'm writing a biography of my life, okay? And I'm talking about a, a certain instance, and I'm talking about a message that I brought at a particular place with a particular burden and emphasis, right? Let's just say that I preached that message many times over the years and that over the years that message deepened and intensified and and, and filled out more. Well, I I might give the fullest version of that message to say this was the theme I was preaching on because the whole goal is I want you to get that theme at that point. Or uh, have you ever read a book and it'll start in one place, and then it'll recapitulate. It'll now go back to another and, and get you back to there or weave in another stream. So the, the gospel writers do the exact same thing. It, it is only a misunderstanding of inerrancy or infallibility that would think it's a contradiction or a problem. So, again, it's, you have to understand what they're doing, what they're intending to do. There's a saying in, in Jewish commentary about the Torah there is no earlier and later in the Torah, meaning that you may have an account that's put in one chapter that actually refers to something that happens later. So something in the wilderness wanderings, you, you want to emphasize a particular law, so you put an incident in that ties in with that law to illustrate the point. But the law was given at one point, that incident happened at a later time. It has nothing to do ultimately with inerrancy or infallibility. Tina 
Why is it that many believe women cannot meet the qualifications of an apostle? The simple answer would be, Tina, that governmental authority was given by God to men, just as the man is the head of the house in a marriage. This is not authority to dominate or rule over. This is authority to serve, authority to lead, and it is a love-based authority. But the argument would be that Jesus told, chose 12 apostles, that those refers to elsewhere in, in Scripture are apostles. Now, some say there's an exception to that. We'll come back to it. That uh, 1 Corinthians 14, along with 1 Timothy 2, lay out that men are the ones who are, who are to lead and to have uh, authority, say, in, in the congregation. So these arguments would be used that, that men have the authority to teach. And because of that, uh, just like, uh, excuse me, it's, it's uh, yeah, First Timothy 2, as I said. Uh, so based on those passages, it's understood that governmental authority is given to men following the pattern in the home. There can be exceptions as needs arise and as people are available, and as God chooses, but the pattern would be male authority. Now, uh, I, I explain that a little bit more. You can watch a video on women being pastors. You can uh, listen to a show that I've done on it. Just go to askdrbrown.org, type in, in the search engine, women, pastors, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll find some shows we've done on it and a short video as well. I, I explain it again based on apostles, simply because the issue of apostle is clearly a foundational governmental authority position. Now, some would argue that in Romans, the 16th chapter, it is speaking of a female apostle. Romans, the 16th chapter. And there is a debate. Is it Junius, a man, or Junia, a woman? That's the first thing in Romans chapter 16. Uh, And is it... Is it uh, that she was, let's say it was Junia, that she was well-known among the apostles or that she was a well-known apostle? So uh, greet Adronicus and Junia, Romans sixteen seventeen. My fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners, they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Okay, so if it's a woman there, she was noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles or... Or is it saying that she was noteworthy among the apostles? She was an outstanding apostle who are of note among the apostles, who are outstanding among the apostles. So that would indicate that perhaps there could be female apostles. So it depends on the translation. Assuming that Junia is correct, that it is a woman. Notice that also whenever Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, the majority of time it's her name first which would obviously indicate she was the more prominent personality because the custom would be to put the man's name first. So those are the arguments for, the arguments against. And uh, not only so, but the, the argument for women apostles would emphasize that you are ministering in Jesus, and in Jesus there's no male or female, and therefore it is a spiritual authority. Okay, um... Christian, can you touch on alleged prophecies of Muhammad in the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 18, 18, Song of Solomon 5, 16, and Isaiah 42? Uh, yeah, James White has debated these. Uh, others, I'm sure David would have discussed these things as well. 
But in short, this this is as weak as Islamic apologetics get. This is as bad as apologetic arguments get. Number one, uh, Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, the prophet like Moses cannot be Muhammad because Muhammad was not an Israelite. First thing, it, it was from among the people of Israel. And he was also to be like Moses, who worked signs, wonders, and miracles in a way that Muhammad never did. So Muhammad cannot possibly, under any circumstance, be the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. When it comes to Song of Solomon 5.16, the fact that the, the uh, Hebrew there sounds like the name Muhammad is, is utterly meaningless. You, you have all kinds of names of, of, uh, that's, that, that are taken from Hebrew words, okay? It's 100% unrelated. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing in the passage about it, nothing whatsoever. So, again, it's one of these arguments, even to respond to it gives it credit it doesn't deserve. And then Isaiah 42 is, again, speaking about an Israelite who, who makes the God of Israel known. It's not speaking about a foreigner. It's speaking about an Israelite who makes the God of Israel known. And, and it's, it's not a prophecy that, that this figure is going to arise from Saudi Arabia. So, anyway, what is now Saudi Arabia. Um, Philip, do you believe Jesus gave any conditional prophecies. It's noted in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, Jeremiah, that God's actions are in part determined by our response here, Jeremiah 18. Did he give specific conditional prophecies or promises? Now, he gave many things that if we would do this, thus and such would happen. I don't believe aside from that, that, that there's anything that the condition is implied without him stating it. But with that, we're out of time. Have an awesome weekend. God bless.